This morning we come to another text in this section of the Gospel of Mark where there's two desperate people. There's a father. He's desperate for his child. His child is on his deathbed. His 12-year-old daughter is on her deathbed. And she comes to him in desperation. He comes to, to Jesus in desperation. And, and then as he, as he goes about this, there's another person, a, a woman. All we know about is she's called the woman. For 12 years, she's, had this, she's been suffering from this bleeding condition, this hemorrhage, this bleeding condition. And she has this belief in her mind and her thoughts. Is, if, if I just get to Jesus, and if I can just touch his robe, I'm going to be healed. And that's what she does. And we have, we have two people who are absolutely desperate to be and to be with Jesus today. And what I want to do this morning is I want to invite you to turn the Gospel of Mark as we continue this series to the story of Jesus, how his story intersects with our story. And again, what I want to do is let me just read the Word of God. Let me read their text. And it's a long text. And I want you to notice something about it. I want you to notice the emotion to it. Remember, think about being in a church in the first century, if you will, and, and having someone come to you, and there's, there's no Bibles there, but they're unrolling a scroll and they're, they're reading this, and you're sitting there and they're reading this, and there's, there's this, all they're doing is just reading it, and, and, and how it would be described to you, and the emotion, and the setting, and, and all of that. Just consider that. And consider also there's kind of a sandwich. What I mean by that is we begin with one story, and then there's embedded in that one story another story, and then we come back to it. Mark, in some way, creates a sandwich, if you will, of theology to remind us of who Jesus is. So let me, let me read our text this morning. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hand on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed immediately. Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you? His disciples answered, And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing. He went in and he, he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples were with him. And went where the child was, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the beauty and the power of the person of Jesus who comes to us in our brokenness. Father, thank you that 
doesn't matter what we're going through right now. If it's good, if it's bad, Lord, we can call out and we can cry out to you because you are faithful and you will do all that you've promised. Father, we humbly come to you. We come to your word. Father, our, our Bibles are open. Our hearts are open. We ask that through the Spirit of God, you would speak to us about who you are and how you've come to us. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. This morning, we, we come to a, a lesson about desperation and, and death, and ultimately, it's, it's, it's about faith. It's about simple faith. And there's probably lots of application that we're going to be able to find from this. But what we see in this passage, we see is absolute desperation, if you will. We see desperation of Jairus, the synagogue official. We see desperation from a woman who's suffering from a, a bleeding condition for 12 years. She's been suffering. And, and then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to see deliverance. It's going to come first to the woman, and then it's going to come to this man, Jairus, and to his daughter. And then at the end, what I want to do is I, I want to just gather together maybe another D word, some decisions. What, what do we do with this? How do, we, how do we look at this text? What do we leave here with? So if you want an outline, the outline would be this idea of desperation, deliverance, and decision. That's kind of where we're going to go. So, so let's begin with the desperation of Jairus in verse 21. After a short trip across the Sea of Galilee to heal a man possessed um, by demons, uh, they come back to the other side. They come back to the, to the good side of the tracks, if you will. They, they come to the Jewish side, if you will. And um, they, it's probably around maybe around the city of Capernaum. They, they land on the shore. And as soon as they land there, you notice the text says there's just, just a crowd of people there. It's almost as if they're standing on the shore and they're looking out and they're waiting for the boat. The Gospel of Luke says this. They were actually waiting to welcome him. So there's this large crowd. Again, there's this theme of large crowds in here. Jesus has left. He's come back and there's large crowds of people are just gathered or they're on the shore. And it's, as soon as the boat lands on the shore, this man comes. He just comes up out of the crowd and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He's described as, as a synagogue official. His name is Jairus. He's probably a leading man in the community. He's a, a ruler of the synagogue. He had responsibility. You know, maybe he was to take care of the temple or, or the synagogue, or he used to take care of the, the people inside or the sacrifices or, or maybe some other things. But he was a prominent man in the city. There's no doubt that he was. He was a godly leader. He was a godly father, a, a man of reputation, a servant in the community. And over and over, it's interesting how Mark tends to highlight this idea that he's a synagogue official. So he comes Sabbath after Sabbath to set up, to prepare. But not only that, he's a, he's a worshiper. He's a God fear. He loves God. He loves God's word. So he's, he's seen the, the word of God, the Old Testament enrolled to him. He's heard the stories. He's heard the teachings. He's heard all of these things. He's heard about the patriarchs. He's heard about the promises. He's heard about all of this wonderful teaching about his God. And there's no doubt he knew Psalm 46.1 that says this, God is a refuge, very present help in a time of trouble. There's no doubt that he'd heard those things. Because desperation has come to something really, really bad. Despite all that he did in serving the Lord, something bad has happened to his family. Look at verse 23. He's begging Jesus for help. It says this, My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. This is real pain. This is real pain. This is suffering. It doesn't get any worse than this for many of us. Have your own child on the brink of death. We all know what it's like to be in this desperate situation, to have our worlds rocked. February 14th, 15th, my dad calls. Your brother passed away. We're in shock. I'm not any different than you. We've all had those experiences, whether it be the email or the situation or something that comes up, and all of a sudden, our worlds are absolutely rocked. We're shocked as to what's going on. 
And notice what happens. Without any spoken word, Jesus just goes with him. Why? Well, why, why is Jesus going with him? I mean, he's just landed on shore. Doesn't Jesus have a plan? Doesn't he have a day timer? Doesn't he, isn't he going by plan here? Purposes? He just, it's just text. It's just, he, just, he just goes with him. Let me ask you, how do you handle interruptions in your life? That this is a real interruption in the life of Jesus. By the way, there's going to be another one in his life. This is a person of desperation. This person of desperation has once again come to Jesus, fallen at his feet, and asked for him. And Jesus picks up his steps and says, listen, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you. How do you handle the desperation? How do you just handle those issues, those times in your life where life is really, really... Well, what's interesting about the taxes, it just gets worse. Verse 24 talks about it's getting worse. There's more and more people coming around Jesus. Listen, we're talking about crowds and crowds of people. This isn't just like this. This is, you're, you're packed, you're sandwiched together. The, the, uh, another gospel writer talks about Jesus being pressed together around people. This is side by side. Many years ago, they had a golf tournament at um, Bell Reef Country Club, and, and I went out there, and there's a guy by the name of Phil Mickelson. He's a golfer, professional golfer, and he would not sign autographs uh, during the rounds. But if you went afterwards, he would go to a certain place, he would go to the autograph place, and he would, uh, he would sign autographs. So we went over there, my, my son and I, we went over there, and there were just throngs of people. And I remember this one guy, he irritated me. He was an older guy, and he had two, flag, he had two flags, and what he wanted to do, he was, he was worming his way in, and he was pressing his way, and he was pushing his way, and I, I, he was behind me, and all of a sudden, he ends up in front of me. And he's pushing and prodding his way through the crowd. That is the picture that we get here with crowds of people pressing along. It, it talks about Jesus almost being crushed in Luke chapter 8, verse 42. Then all of a sudden, in the midst of that context, Another desperate person comes and interrupts Jesus' ministry life again. And what you have in verses 25 through 27, you have a description of the condition of this woman. And what's interesting is it's the longest verse, it's the longest Greek verse in the Gospel of Mark. And I think the reason it is, is because it's a graphic description of this woman and the desperation that she felt and what she was experiencing. She was physically desperate. Look at verse 25. A woman was there who'd had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. For as long as Jairus has had a daughter, this woman has suffered from this bleeding condition. And it had caused her much pain and suffering. It's this idea of blood continues to flow from her. In our day and age, if you were to go to the doctor and they would know that you were, had a blood condition, what would they do? They would immediately give you a, a, a transfusion. I mean, imagine how weak she is from the blood continually flowing through her body. She's physically desperate. She's spiritually desperate. Most people, most commentators believe that she had maybe some kind of vaginal or menstrual type of bleeding. It continued to flow from her. And because of that condition, she would be rendered unclean within the, 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 the Jewish community. Leviticus chapter 15, notice how it describes her condition and what would be required of her. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. For 12 years, this woman has been declared unclean by the Jewish community. She can't go to the synagogue. She can't travel to the temple and worship. She's probably just ostracized out there. And I wonder if the Jewish people, some of them are thinking, well, deep inside of their hearts, well, maybe there's something wrong with her. Maybe there's some kind of sin condition that's going on in her life. She's spiritually desperate. She's socially desperate. Because of this bleeding condition, she can't be around people. 
Every person that she would contact, be in contact with, she would re, she would render them unclean. I would imagine there's no way that she would intentionally want to do this to be around people and to allow them to become spiritually unclean, if you will. So she socially ostracized. She's kind of less than a person. It's very little dignity. Maybe an outcast in the society. For 12 years, this has been going on and on. She's emotionally desperate. Look at verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Listen, we know that. We know this. When you have a physical condition, when something is going wrong with your body, we do whatever it takes. Won't we go to doctor to doctor, get a second opinion, maybe a third opinion? And, and if you're going through a really, really hard thing, and if someone offers you a suggestion, don't we consider it? Yeah, we do. And when you look at this in the Talmud, one of the Jewish writings there, when you look at the Talmud, they had 11 different cures, if you will, for a woman in this particular position. Let me just read one of them to you. And this is the extent to probably what she was going through. The Talmud says this, Take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has the issue of blood. If this does not benefit her, take of Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine, give her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flocks. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand. Let someone come behind her and frighten her and say, Arise from thy flocks. Just scare the disease right out of her. We laugh. But listen, when you are desperate for 12 years, I think that is what this woman is experiencing. She has nowhere else to go. And notice what else in verse 26. She's financially desperate. She has spent all that she had. Instead of getting better, she keeps getting worse. I bet there's no doubt she's borderline bankrupt. She spent every last penny that she's had trying to find a cure for this. How demoralizing this must to go to a doctor. And the doctor says, you know what, I, I think I can help you. Only to stay with the doctor for a month or two or a year and nothing works. And then, and then she goes to another doctor. I, I think that I can help you. And her hopes arise again. And then they fall up and down. This must have been incredibly demoralizing, if you will, for this guy. In the midst of all of that, she hears about a guy named Jesus. And maybe she's heard stories. Maybe she's heard testimony. Maybe she's heard some things about this guy by the name of Jesus. And what she wants to do is she wants to go and she wants to squeeze her way through the crowd. And I just want to touch his robe because you see what the gospel writer Mark does? I think what he does is he paints a picture of desperation for, from, for Jairus, the synagogue official. This Jewish man is used to worshiping God. He's desperate because his daughter's at the brink of death. And as Jesus goes to minister to, to him, this, this, this woman is around and she's going to come and she wants to come around him. We have this picture of, of two desperate people trying to come to Jesus, trying to crawl out to him, if you will, and ask for help. And no one to help him. This is desperate. In verses 29 to 43, we have the deliverance of Jesus. Both people are going to experience some kind of healing. And it's going to be a little bit backwards, if you will. It's going to begin with a woman. We're going to see that beginning in verse 29. Now, I don't know what you think about the woman. I don't know what you think about her illness. I find great delight in her. I find great delight in wanting to, in this desperate situation, to come and try and find some help based upon what she's heard about Jesus. Says she's heard about him. She, she wants to come to him. She wants to, to find out 
what she can do to get help. Look at verse 29. She comes to Jesus. She's beginning to wheeze her way through the, through the crowd, pushing against all the people. Verse 29, it says this. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt on her body that she was freed from her suffering. I, I mean, think about Imagine it. She's weaving her way through, pushing through all the crowd. She finally gets her arm through. And as soon as she grabs onto his robe, she felt something. She knew something. The bleeding stopped. She felt something was different about her body. And she knew that she had been immediately, from all of that, in a moment's notice, her life was radically changed. A person of Jesus. And help me. 12 years. And we don't see any jumping in, up and down. We don't sing any. What we see is a woman who grabbed him, and what does she want to do? She wants to just, she wants to shrink off. Probably retreating from the crowd. Nobody else knew this was going on. And all of a sudden, Jesus stopped. Look at verse 30. At once. Two things are happening here. She's touching Jesus, and at once Jesus finds out what's going on. At once it says that Jesus realized that the power had gone out for him. And we're all sitting here, we're going, how did that happen? I'm going to tell you how it happened. The power went out from Jesus. That's all I know. But we want to know something different, don't we? Don't we want to know what happened? Don't we feel like, oh, women, I, I want to know exactly what happened. There's no doubt there's mystery here. There's mystery in this touch. There's mystery in this interactor with Jesus. There's something mysterious going on. All that we know is that this woman in desperation came through the crowds and said, what does she want to do? She wants to get and she wants to touch Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He singles her out. Verse 30, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Did Jesus know who touched her clothes? Some people say that, well, maybe Jesus really didn't know who touched his clothes. It's one of those human moments of Jesus where he didn't really know what was going on. I tend to, to think that Jesus knew all kinds of things. He knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what the disciples were thinking. He knew what the religious leaders were thinking. He, he knew all of those kinds of things. I think he knew all of those kinds of things. But the disciples are asking the question. They're, they're looking at Jesus being a little bit incredulous. Jesus, you see all these people crowding around you? I mean, there's masses of people that are pressing you, and you're asking who touched you? Are you kidding me? All of these people are touching you. They're all pressing around you. They all want a piece of you. So why did he ask the question? I think in the backdrop of verses 25 through 27, we see why Jesus asked the question in verses 32 to 33. Notice what he says. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Stops. He asked the question. He's doing this. Penetrating gaze of Jesus. Then the woman. Isn't it interesting? We know Jairus. We know these are synagogue officials, but we don't know who this woman is. She's the woman, the woman who was there. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the truth, whole truth. Notice again, she's falling at the feet of Jesus and there's this emotion of fear, this reaction. Something mighty and powerful has happened in her life. She knows immediately what is going on. And Jesus asked the question, who touched me? And I think what Jesus does is Jesus elicits from her a public confession, a public profession, if you will, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I believe what Jesus wanted to do is if there was any thought in her mind that it was just the, the robe or something external about Jesus, about it was the Talmud or some kind of magic formula or some other way that she had that she was healed, Jesus is going to correct it. He's going to correct her thought processes, if you will. That it wasn't the robe, it wasn't sneaking through the crowd, it was the unique person of Jesus and who he was. Because there was a lot of people pressing on Jesus. And I don't see anybody else falling on the face, and I don't see anybody else reacting. 
This woman somehow, someway knew. And I think what Jesus is doing, he's correcting her thoughts about what it means for Jesus to touch someone's life. And I think there's a second reason. You're talking about Jesus. God in the flesh who loves his people. He loves a demon-possessed man enough to travel across the Sea of Galilee, to go to him, heal him, and then return. One man greeted him when he went on that journey, the demon-possessed man. When he comes back, a crowd of people here. Jesus loves his people. And he wants, I believe, he wants to look in the eyes of this woman, this nameless woman, and he wants to look into her eyes and reveal to her, you are a person with value. I value you. I value the condition that you're in. I know the pain and the suffering that you're going through. And what I want to do is I want to do what I can to bring relief to you. And I believe Jesus wants to look in her eyes and he wants to touch her in the desperate situation that she's in. And then what does she do? She tells what? The whole story. That's what she says. It says she shared the whole truth. How do we know about this story? Only if she tells the whole truth, right? If not, only two people know the miracle. Jesus and this. What does Jesus do? He draws out this public confession. And what does she do? She pours out and says, I'm going to tell you, I'm in a desperate position. I've been going through all of this for 12 years and no one is able to hear. That's what it says. It says she poured out her life and she told the whole story of her life. And all of these people are, and they're hearing her public confession of the desperation that she'd gone through and what Jesus had done. But I think there's some more important. Look at verse 34. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I, I just can't imagine what those words meant to that woman. You realize that there's no other place in the Bible where Jesus used the word daughter. I have three daughters, my wife and I. They're daughters because my wife and I, obviously, we're together and they're our family. It, it, it's a relational kind of What is Jesus doing here? He's relating to her on a different level, on a, a level a spiritual level in different ways as family members. In the book of Romans, it says this, Romans chapter 8, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. She was in fear. You're no longer in fear, but you received what? A spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. She was now a child of God by her simple mustard-like faith and reaching out and touching. And Jesus affirms that. because He's calling her daughter. What a beautiful picture of relationship. She's in a relationship of peace, peace wholeness, security. For 12 years, the one thing that's been absent in her life is peace, relational peace, emotional peace. She has not experienced any of that. In one moment encounter with the person of Jesus, she is in a relationship of peace. She's freed from her suffering. 12 years she's been suffering. For 12 years she's been in pain and suffering. And the last thing is notice what he says. He affirms that she's a woman of faith. Her healing didn't come as some magical phrase that she said. It wasn't this thing that happened in the Talmud by doing that. It wasn't the clothes that touched her life and change. It was the fact that she went to Jesus and Jesus in his grace and brought healing. Let me ask you, what drove her to Jesus? It wasn't her love for Jesus. It doesn't say that. It wasn't the fact that she knew that Jesus was the Messiah. It doesn't say that. Or miracles or, or anything. What, what drove her to Jesus? What? Her desperation. She had nowhere else to go in the world. And in her desperation, she turned to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He draws out her mustard-type faith. Draws it out. You are a daughter. You're my child. You are also a woman of faith. This interaction is going on, and all of a sudden, I'm imagining Jairus is standing there, and he's going, 
tapping his feet. He's got to be looking at a watch. He's got to be checking his daytimer. I mean, his, his daughter's on the brink of death, and did Jesus has been stopped. And notice what happens in verse 35. It doesn't stop. While Jesus is still speaking, some men came to the house of Jairus, synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Imagine what happened to Jairus. I, I really don't know what he's feeling at this point. I, I have to believe he's at the point of devastation, right? His daughter's dead. They just come to him and report, don't bother the teacher anymore. But that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Why bother the teacher? I wonder how many people in the church, I wonder how many people live life. I just don't really want to bother Jesus. The story here is that people bother Jesus. They come to Jesus in their desperation. They come to him in their heartache. They come to him in their brokenness. They come to him. But imagine that Jairus' world has been rocked. And Jesus speaks to him. That's what he says in verse 36. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I take that to me he was fearful. His dead daughter's dead. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe what? He just saw Jesus do a miracle. He heard of the miracle from this woman, right? From the testimony of this woman. Jesus can heal a woman who's been in a, a condition for 12 years. What does that mean for me? I, I've never heard of someone calling someone back from the dead. Is there hope for me? And they leave. And they just go back on their way in their journey to Jairus' house. I think one of the things that we need to remember about this is, is it probably took me about three minutes to read that text, right? Three, four minutes. What we do is we compress the Bible into short segments, and we forget the time element. And the reason I say this is, so Jesus lands on the shore, the crowd of people come in, and, and, and Jairus comes in, and he begins to move, and then there's also the woman that comes up, and the crowds of people are still there, and there's taking some time there, and there's no doubt there's interaction going on, and they're talking, they're going, and there's other things that are recorded, and then Jesus makes his way to Jairus' house. And the reason I, I talk about the time element, because when you get to the house, guess what's happening at the house? They're already having a funeral. They're wailing. They're crying. They're throwing themselves around. There's a huge commotion going on. The funeral has already started. So I say that to remind you, there's a time element going on here. It didn't just immediately happen. Jesus walks up and there's this funeral going on and there's, there's this, all of this stuff going on. And it's loud, it's noisy, and there's people wailing and there's professional flute players and this stuff's going on. It's a reminder that this woman has died. And there's no doubt there's a lot of people there because this guy's a, a synagogue ruler. He's got family, he's got friends. All these people are there and they're gathered at his house. And look at what happens in verse 39. Jesus says this, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not asleep. What is Jesus doing here? What do you mean the child is not asleep? We know that she's not asleep. We know that she's dead. Maybe what Jesus is doing is opening the door, cracking the door for what it means for us to know what death is really all about. Death is a transition for us believers to die, we go to be with the Lord, absent with the body home of the Lord. We will hear that later in the teachings of Paul. But there's this idea that the body is going to go into the grave, and Jesus is opening the door when it means the reality of death for a believer, and what it means to have faith and trust in him, to have life beyond the grave. And you notice what's happening here? They're laughing at him. They're mocking They laugh at Jesus. What I find interesting is that you see how fast they go from mourning and wailing and crying to laughing at Jesus. Do you see the sincerity in their life? There's no sincerity here. They're professionals. They're getting paid. They don't care about this family. They don't care about anything. They're laughing and mocking at Jesus. He would do something like this. But Jesus does care, and that's why Jesus is. Jesus cares about people and their desperation. He cares about people. Like verse 41, in a beautiful way, verse 41 says this. He took her by the hand, this dead girl. He said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, 
get up. One commentator says that maybe these are the kinds of work that a mom would say to a child, waking her up in the morning. She would maybe crawl into the bedroom and just say, hey, listen, my little child, I say to you, rise, get up. One commentator said that maybe that's kind of like a, a little bit of a parallel there. And the text says immediately she got up, she began to walk around the room. Verse 42 says this, at this they were what? Completely astonished, mega astonished at what? The fact that Jesus brought this little 12-year-old girl back from the bush. Let me ask you something. Are you astonished at this text? Are we astonished at what Jesus We just kind of get into our patterns in our life and we, we don't come to Jesus in our desperation or in our challenges. We just kind of go through life. Jesus comes to some desperate people. He delivers them. So what I want to do is just in a couple of minutes we have left, I, I want to just draw some application. What are the decisions that we need to look at with regard to this text and what we've seen so far? in a life, which is a couple of things. Number one is this. I, I think this, this passage of Scripture is set in the context of chapter 4, verse 21, 41. At the end of the storm, the question is, who is he? Who is he? He can calm a storm. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. And by the way, right now, we've just found out, not only can he do that, but he can raise the dead. Who is this Jesus? He's Lord. He is the Lord. He is the King of Kings. No one stop him. Jesus, let me ask, is he Lord of your life? I don't mean just going to church. Is he Lord of your family? Is he Lord of your job? Is he Lord of your, your social life? Is, is he Lord of your thought life? Is, is he Lord in all those areas? I think that's what we would ask ourselves in this text. If Jesus is Lord of all of those areas, am I going and continuing to give myself to the Lordship of Jesus? I'm not talking about Lordship salvation here. I'm just talking about Jesus being the master of our life and declaring that no matter what's going on in our life, Lord of my life. Second thing is this, the compassion of Jesus. Think again about the interruptions in the life of Jesus and what happened. I, I mean, Jesus is not living by a daytimer. He's not living by a planner here, is he? What is he doing? He's, he's going. People are coming to him and there's an interruption over here and there's, there's something else going on over here and he's, he's responding to need. And, and I think the question for us is, how well do we respond to the needs of people around us, to desperate people around us? You know, we don't want to get involved in some of those things. Man, some of those problems are really big. I don't know if I can handle that. There's a man by the name of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote this, and I want to put it on the screen. He said this, We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will constant, be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans, sending us people with claims and petitions. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are, are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path, the crooked path of life. That's what Jesus experienced, the crooked path of his life. I think it, it's just helpless and hurting people, and God has given us the message. to. Third thing is this. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in the life of Jesus? What's interesting is to go back and look at this, and all seem, except for the demonic, all seem to issue around the, the thought of faith. Disciples, where is your faith? This woman, if, if I just get to him, I've got this mustard seed faith. It might not be the right kind. If I just get to him and I touch his clothes, I'm going to be healed. Jairus said this, if you come to my house, if you put your hands on her, you, she will be healed. These are all elements of mustard seed kind of faith, and Jesus is refining it to them. What do you believe about Jesus and where you find yourself today? Are, you, are we trusting in him? And I think the other thing about this is that instantaneous thing, you realize when you committed your life to Jesus, you were instantaneously changed on the inside. You were instantly changed on the inside. There's a song that we sing, To God Be the Glory. Second verse, To God Be the Second verse goes like this. 
O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon instantaneously. The vilest offender doesn't go on in your life. That's the beauty of who Jesus is. And the last thing I'd leave you with this is because he lives, we will live. There is one day going to be death. There is one day going to be a resurrection. There is one day life beyond this. For us, we sleep. The body goes in the ground we go to be with Jesus. And maybe you're not in a place of desperation. God bless you. I, I hope that you're not. But one day you're going to come, you're going to be confronted with death, I guarantee it. And then where will you go? What will you do? I think is the question that comes out of this. In the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of challenges of life, I invite you to trust who Jesus is and what he's done. And in your desperation, wherever you find continue to call and cry. Father, thank you for hurting people. I thank you for the example of desperation from the word of God that reminds us that, that we can call out to you, that we can cry out to you. The disciples in the water, Lord, save us. We're drowning. Peter's sinking on the water reaching out. Lord, save me. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your We thank you that you come to hurting and hopeless people. And Father, I ask that you would help us to be mindful, not only of our own lives, but the people that we come in contact with. Father, there are some people who have no place else to go. And we have the message of the gospel. I ask that you would allow us to be able to. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.